0: okay, what does that mean? You may be able to get enough retained in your brain to pass an exam, but then you retain it later because things that your brain doesn't grasp, so they don't stay. You've got to practice, right? Because that's the whole point. You've got to understand how it applies in real life because otherwise, if you don't, you're not helpful to your client.
1: Are you ready to know what you don't know about Privacy Pros? Then you're in the right place.
2: Welcome to the Privacy Pros Academy podcast by KZN Privacy Experts the podcast to launch, progress, and excel your career as a privacy pro.
1: Hear about the latest news and developments in the world of privacy.
2: Discover fascinating insights from leading global privacy professionals. And hear
1: real stories and top tips from the people who've been where you want to get to.
2: We're an official IAPP training partner.
1: We've trained people in over 137 countries and councils.
2: So whether you're thinking about starting a career in data privacy or you're an experienced professional, this is the podcast for you.
3: Hi everyone and welcome to the Privacy Pros Academy podcast. My name is Jamila and I'm a data privacy analyst at Kasey Privacy Experts. I'm primarily responsible for conducting research on current and upcoming legislation, as well as any key developments and decisions by supervisory authorities. With me today as my co-host is Jamal Ahmed, who is a fellow of information privacy and CEO at KZ and Privacy Experts. Jamal is an established and comprehensively qualified privacy professional with a demonstrable track record solving enterprise-wide data privacy and data security challenges for SMEs through complex global organizations. Jamal is a Certified Information Privacy Manager, Certified Information Privacy Professional, Certified EU GDPR Practitioner, Master NLP Practitioner, Prince II Practitioner, and he holds a Bachelor of Arts in Business with Law. He is a revered global privacy thought leader, world-class trainer, and published author for publications such as Thomson Reuters, The Independent, Euronews, as well as numerous industry publications. He makes regular appearances in the media, on television, radio and in print and has been dubbed the king of GDPR by the BBC. To date he has provided privacy and GDPR compliance solutions to organisations across six continents and in over 30 jurisdictions helping to safeguard the personal data of over a billion data subjects worldwide. Welcome
1: Jamal, thanks for joining me again. Hi Jamila, really happy to be back for another episode and I want to share something with everyone listening. Every week we get lots of messages from people who have listened to the podcast and they say lots of great things. But this week Jose, one of our previous guests, he reached out and he said, hey Jamal, check this out, I've got this message. It says, hi Jose, I'm a lawyer licensed to practice in a specific area and I intend to specialize in the area of data protection and data privacy. I listened to the podcast where you were interviewed by Jamal Ahmed on having a career in data privacy and what it entails. I was deeply inspired by your interview. I gained a lot of insight on how intellectually stimulating, interesting, and dynamic data privacy is. The rudiments for success in the profession in which you mentioned gaining experience in order to stand out from the competition. Acquiring the relevant certifications to demonstrate knowledge, being resilient and building oneself in order to approach the job better. Listening to your podcast fueled me in the zeal and courage to keep striving till I get the desired success. Thanks for doing the interview. Wow.
3: That's nice. I think it's really good hearing feedback because sometimes when we're doing the podcast, I feel like I'm just having a nice chat with people and I forget that it's going out and people will be listening to it. So it's really great to get feedback like that.
1: I want to encourage you to reach out to the guests. If they really inspired you, then let them know and reach out to us and let us know. And if you have an idea or a topic that you'd like us to cover that we haven't yet, feel free to send those in and we'll get all our esteemed guests to make sure they answer those as well. Now, why don't you tell us about our special guest who's going to be featuring on the number one data privacy podcast of 2021 today, Jamila?
3: Very excited about today's guest. We've got Odia Kagan with us, and she is a partner and chair of GDPR compliance and international privacy practice at Fox Rothschild LLP, a US national law firm. She has advised more than 200 companies of varying industries and sizes on compliance with GDPR, the California Consumer Privacy Act, and other U.S. data protection laws. With an emphasis on a pragmatic risk-based approach, Odia provides clients with practical advice on how to design and implement their products and services in a compliant manner. She holds three law degrees, five bar admissions, and five privacy certifications. And you can follow her on linkedin.com slash Odia Kagan, and we will link that below. But welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. What an amazing set of credentials, three (laughs) law degrees. I mean, that's amazing. Well, I really like studying. You can tell, right? (laughs) (laughs) I share that passion. I'm currently doing my PhD. Very cool. As we all do on the Privacy Pros Academy podcast. We start with an icebreaker question. What's got your attention today and why? So I actually I read
0: my little updates every morning and I read that the NAI actually published an opt-out tool for hashed emails used in targeted advertising. So I thought that was interesting. They're supplementing their third-party cookie opt-out tool with the hashed email in view of the change and migration towards first-party
3: data due to the
0: deprecation of the third-party cookies. So I thought that was interesting this morning.
1: Yeah, that could be a big game changer for a lot of firms.
3: What does that mean for the regular consumer online?
0: Basically, right now, targeted advertising is done to a great extent, by third party cookies, right? That's going to be phased out. It was supposed to be now, but there's a delay, but it will be. So now companies are migrating their targeted advertising strategy to first party data. And that means if they can't use a third party cookie, then they use an email. So they use hashed emails as your identifier. And so what this means is that for those parties that are using hashed emails as the way to identify you in your travels across the web and for formulating the targeted advertising, you can opt out of it and have it be not targeted.
3: That's really good then. So will it prevent our data being sold to third parties?
1: Well, the whole idea of having it hashed out is nobody knows who it's related to. So like it's protected anyway, like pseudonymized it's not third party so it's not sold on to somebody else it's first party so let's just say for example jamila you and onto your favorite handbag retailer's website yes right now they might use cookies like facebook pixels or from somewhere else and then they might send you adverts right let's just say you're reading an article next and then you see an advert pop up that might be based on those cookies and the third party cookies that they use to track you now what's happening is because those are being phased out and google's introducing stuff like flock etc what they're saying is, okay, we're going to use your email that you used to sign up to the account and we're going to follow you based on that unique email. So for data privacy reasons, we're going to hash it out, so no one not going to see that email, but we still know that it's a unique identifier and we're going to follow you around. So now what you're saying is, okay, you can't have my cookies and you can't use my hashed email to follow me around and send me targeted things. So it could be a good thing in a way where it means that no one is actually profiling you and trying to build this up and targeting you. But at the same time, you will start seeing a lot of things that are completely irrelevant to you. So there's two sides to the argument and we need to balance both of those things because how annoying is it going to be if every time you're walking around, all you're seeing is adverts for football boots?
3: Might make me start off a new hobby, but there we are. It could be, but let's just
1: say something you hate. Coffee, I don't like coffee. So imagine you started getting targeted, like coffee is a massive industry and there will be coffee shops and there'll be people who want to sell you coffee beans targeting you now because they don't know what your interests are. So they're like, "Mm, yeah, why not? Send her an advert. One of the challenges not having or not enabling somebody to understand what your interests and likes are. So it works from both ways. And as privacy professionals, we always have to take that balanced view.
0: Right, Odia? It's a big discussion now, right? Like surveillance advertising. And there is a big trend now to talk about surveillance advertising. Like, should we phase it out completely? There's research being done right now to figure out whether the whole premise of targeted advertising and the tons of data that's being collected and collated, right? So Jamal was saying, like, the downside is you don't get good Advertising, which is well curated to you. So that's definitely a problem. The question is, what is the solution for that? Is targeted advertising bias, surveillance and third party cookies and things like that? Is that a good solution? or not. Now research has shown, I mean, you've seen this. I mean, I see stuff on like Instagram or whatever. There's stuff that pops up there. And sometimes you go in and it's like, why are you showing me these ads? And you go in and it's like, your interests are sport. No, yeah. that is based on clicks and things and like what I do on the web. So question is what is the holy grail for targeting? And now there is a, a thinking about first party data using like curation or data bunkers or whatever, which like supplementing first party data with third, party data. The trick being that this all needs to be permissioned, depending on which legal regime you are, or you are in the US, this whole thing still needs to be permissioned. So that's one option. And the other option, which is being looked at is contextual advertising, which has always been there. Contextual advertising is I am reading an article about shoes, hypothetically, or makeup, and then I get an ad for shoes or makeup. Now that's really simplistic. Right now, contextual advertising is a lot more advanced and there's a lot more data points, but it's more privacy preserving. So the question is with the deprecation of cookies, with the deprecation of the IDFA on iOS 14.5, we need different ways to do this. And now the question is what they are and how to do them in a privacy preserving way.
3: And do you think that the new privacy legislations that have been coming in have had quite an effect on advertisers?
0: Oh, for sure. I think that the entire industry, right, is affected by this and everybody needs to change their strategy, right? Like if if your whole tech stack and your whole strategy has been relying on third party cookies, then obviously the lane ends kind of thing. Like what's the meter equivalent when the lane ends? I
3: can ask Alexa if you'd like.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Lane ends in 50 meters, right? So you have that sign. So this is now, right? Like, okay, third party cookie is ending. In 50 meters, and we've got to figure out different ways. So it's definitely affecting companies. Then the argument is okay, who is being affected by it? So the argument is some people are saying that small and medium companies, enterprises, and publishers are being more affected by this because the bigger companies, either the so-called like walled gardens or just big companies, right? They already have a very solid first-party data set. They have loyalty programs, they have Instagram followers, they have multi-channel channel presence. And so they already have their first party data and they just need to ameliorate it, build on it, build the trust. If you're a small company, let's say that's the issue is how is this affecting small companies? Like on Instagram or like you were some small company, this is typical like pandemic example. Uh, You guys probably saw all these companies with paint by number canvases. I'm guilty of, I still haven't finished my detailed lion of like the paint by number lion thing. There was like a bazillion companies that popped up about this. Now a company like that, one is small, two, that is new. You're trying to create a category. You don't have a following. You need to generate that following. People used to do that was through third-party cookies. And so now what? The marketers are looking at it. Publishers are looking at it. It's definitely a game changer.
3: Yeah, I wouldn't want to be an advertiser right now. I feel it's quite like when GDPR came into effect in the UK and everyone started getting loads of emails from all these different companies saying, we're changing this and we're doing this. They were confused. And I think it sounds kind of similar with the new advertising rules with cookies. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into the questions. Odia, what first sparked your interest in data privacy? I
0: was doing a lot of work in tech when i started at like high tech and then i started learning about the european the data protection directive it always interested me to see what's the ramifications of using somebody's information in a way that isn't compliant with rules so i always gravitated towards that and even now when i have like discussions with people i do a lot of automotive for example privacy and so i have conversations with my husband about the sensors and how they work. And so you can see he's a tech and innovation person. So he's thinking, oh, what do I need to program here? So the car does this and it recognizes this and it doesn't, and it stops and it breaks and it moves. And I'm thinking, What are they going to do with the data? Who are they going to share it with? Who is this going to affect? I've always thought about it. And then I started out practicing more European privacy because of GDPR. Now, obviously, the US laws are catching up and there's a lot of stuff to do there.
1: Given the most recent announcement by Joe Biden, do you think there's going to be a federal privacy law in the US coming soon? You
0: mean the executive order? So, I mean, the executive order highlights a lot of issues with respect to the enforcement of privacy compliance. And it highlights that this is an issue that is important. I think this has already been a trend. I mean, it's not with CCPA and CPRA and the different state laws and the different bills even that didn't come to fruition. I mean, we've had tens of bills in the past year. I think it's obvious that the U.S. approach for privacy is serious and people are aware of it. This is very big because I used to teach privacy law and internet law at a university, at a law school here, like six, seven years ago. And I would ask people, the students, Okay, well, what do you think is privacy? And the overwhelming response had to do with Fourth Amendment, search and seizure, government intervention, government surveillance. And very few were like, oh, private companies and cookies and you know, social media, like this just wasn't a thing. And now it's very overwhelmingly a thing. Everybody is aware of it. I think the pandemic also and everything moving online obviously heightened that. So I think that there's definitely a push. There is definitely an awareness, there's a push. There is heightened need for enforcement in the U.S. Whether or not that takes the shape of a federal privacy law in the immediate future is not certain. I don't know if it's likely. The reason is that there are very big differences of opinions with respect to key aspects of what a federal privacy law would need to entail, um, mm-hmm. namely the enforcement, who enforces it. And so you've seen in the past few weeks, there have been U.S. bills, one about the establishment of a federal data protection authority that would take away from the authority and the toolbox of the FTC. On the other hand, I read about this yesterday, so it's just like in the past few days, Two different bills for boosting and bolstering the authority of the FTC as a privacy enforcer, right? There is one bill that went to undo the Supreme Court decision with respect to Section 13B of the FTC Act that allows a certain type of remedy. And there is another one. So then there's a question. The first question is okay, well, one, do we need a separate law? But two, right, who's enforcing this? Is it still the FTC? Is it the FTC and the way they've been doing it? Do we give them more power? Is it a different authority? And then we have in the US a lot of authorities that have privacy enforcement rights and capabilities. We have the FTC, we have the OCR, we have the CFPB. And so what do you do with them? So that's kind of one aspect. The other aspect is preemption. Does a federal law need to be a threshold or a ceiling. And that is a very big debate. And so because of that, and you can see it in the state laws, like some of the state laws that didn't come to fruition, like Washington or Florida, private right of action. Like, should people be able to sue in court? for remedies or should this be an AG or a DPA type thing like it is in Europe to some degree, even though in Europe you can also sue. So then the question is, Okay, can you sue? Can you do class actions? And a lot of the state laws fell because of that debate. So that, I think, to me, is going to be an impediment. The only other thing that I can add here is there is an initiative of a uniform like a model law that was just proposed. And there's precedent for model laws in the U.S. where states kind of look at this model and adopt on a state-by-state basis, they adopt a model. And then de facto, you have a standard, but it is adopted by the states. So that is an interesting concept. The question is whether or not this model is the model to go with. Because that one specifically is very different from GDPR and from the U.S. laws. And so query whether that will be a standard to go by. But that could be a way.
1: Sounds very interesting. And this model sounds very similar to the directive that we had before the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulations, came in and made it a blanket law. So it seems like the U.S. could be looking forward to seeing what's happening in Europe and try and find solutions from there to model and replicate and bring in. And maybe in 10, 15, maybe 30 years time, who knows where we might be? We might have something very similar to the GDPR that's blankly applies across the whole of the states.
0: So GDPR has been flagged by The preambles in a number of the laws, I think Colorado had it, maybe not in this iteration. I think the Washington Privacy Act had it and a bunch of the bills did. In the preamble, they're saying Europe and GDPR and that's the standard and that's what we go by, et cetera. And so definitely GDPR is something that the U.S. legislators are looking at. Now, between that and we're going to adopt this verbatim, I think there is a long distance I think the approach in the U.S. are very different to things. And so there will need to be differences. And so one difference, for example, that I can flag that was very on trend and in the news recently is public information. So the LinkedIn, the Facebook so-called hack. Is this a breach? It wasn't a hack, but is it a breach? Is it a day breach? Is it an Article Thirty Three Thirty Four issue? under GDPR? Is it a technical and organizational measures under Article 32? And the approach in the U.S. to public information is very different, just like mentality-wise. Right? I think that you know my friends and European friends that I've spoken with, they have a bad gut reaction to their public information being repurposed. And I think that in the U.S., The approach is, well, I mean, like you made it public, like what's the problem here? And there are gray areas in the middle, which is, yeah, I made it public for charitable contributions, but I didn't want you to go and use it for hitting me up for a donation or I posted it for my social media photo. I didn't want you to go and figure out that I'm disabled and like discriminate against me. If you see the U.S. laws, even the ones that were passed and the others, there is a definition of personal information. There is a carve-out for publicly available information. And then there is a difference as to what that carve-out encompasses. Some of it is just information available from government, federal and government authorities. And some of it is information that the controller reasonably believes has, has purposefully been made available by the individual. And so I think that GDPR is a benchmark for U.S. regulators and legislators to look at. I think that the implementation, I mean, has been and continues to be somewhat different. But the new laws, CPRA, Colorado, Virginia, some aspects are closer to GDPR than CCPA. Specifically, I'm going to call out the definition of consent, which is literally copy-based, from the definition of consent in GDPR, the concept of DPIAs. And so that's gonna be interesting as to how that plays out because that's also a big game changer. As to how we're used to looking at consent here.
3: Why is it that this uh, CCPA has been passed when you mentioned it was Florida has failed in its attempt to get a data protection law at state level? So, what is it about the CCPA that works?
0: So, CCPA and its continuation, CPRA, uh, were passed as a ballot initiative. And that's a unique kind of construct. There, it, it exists in a number of states, but California is one of them. And that basically means that it was passed by the people. So there was an initiative. The initiative was by the proponent of Alistair McTaggart, basically formulated this proposal, got the required number of signatures, And then in the beginning, it was basically, okay, I'm going to pass it as a ballot initiative or, you know, hey, California legislation, either I pass this as is, or you pass it as a law. The CCPA got passed as a law. CPRA got passed as a ballot initiative. And that's really interesting because it also means that the ability to amend CPRA is limited and depends on the people, which is really interesting.
3: So, if they wanted to amend it, it would have to go back to the ballot. We can obviously tell that you're very passionate about the data privacy sector. What is it that you love most about working in data privacy? The thing that I really like the best, and that is
0: that there is a lot, it's very dynamic. There is a lot of changes. You have to keep up with the changes, which, based on our conversation from the beginning, I really love learning. So this is sort of like a built-in learning yeah. experience, because if you don't keep up with everything, then Camille said something yesterday, and Data Tilsonet in Norway said something the other day, and then Luxembourg said something, and you missed it, and you're like out of the loop, right? So that's one, is that it's very dynamic. And the other is that I've practiced in some other areas of law. Like, for example, I used to do M&A transactions. And the thing that I really like about privacy is that you know you do an M&A transaction, it's an M&A transaction for widgets or it's an M&A transaction for like an ad tech company, and depending on your role in the transaction, you, you really don't need to know some of the insides, right? Because it's a company, you look at its ledger, you look at its stock set up and that's it. And you have an asset exhibit and the asset exhibit, somebody fills it out with other things. In privacy, the facts are very important, right? Somebody says, my favorite question, right? Like, do you have a template privacy? No, I don't have a template privacy notice. You can have a template, right, for the pieces on like the rights and the changes and co but the piece that really matters, which is disclosing and analyzing the use and the sharing of the information, that's super fact-specific and you need to kind of dig into the facts. And so I like it because, you know, I think it's kind of like a 3D puzzle, right? Like you've got facts and then you've got laws and the laws are changing and then you've got to like implement them into the facts to make it practical. So I like the challenge of that and the dynamic nature of that.
1: I love that example that you've given me. Exactly what you teach people in the academy. There is no template approach, you can't take templates and try and apply them. To every organization that you come across, you have to take a bespoke approach. Every organization does things differently. They have different purposes. Even if they're in the same space, they will still do things differently. They will collect different information. They use different processes. And therefore, you need to make sure that you understand how to take this information, how to collect this information from the business to begin with, and then put it in a way where everyone that reads it can understand what's happening with their personal data. It's a bit like I say to them, these are tools, right? If you just have a hammer and you don't know anything, everything you do, you're just going to go on to try and bludgeon with the hammer. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to take a hammer to everything, right? You need to know that there is a hammer there. And when I need it, I will use it. But there is also a screwdriver. There's also a, a chisel. There's also a pencil. There's also a pen. And you need to craft what that solution looks like rather than just take that tool and, and smash everything up with it. And um, this is fascinating for me to hear is that you also take that same approach and it's like, no, there isn't templates. And the reason people pay previously pros a lot of money is because, yes, they can go and buy a template for a couple of hundred dollars off the Internet somewhere, but they would rather pay someone to make sure that they get it right. And it's about getting it right first time because you've seen the horrendous privacy notices. You go, and you read something like this does not make sense. And you can tell it's copy and paste. And what that does for the end user, the lack of confidence they have in you when it comes to the privacy, the lack of trust they have means you're ultimately going to start losing business to people who value their privacy. And if you're in Europe, that's a very big deal. Like you said, people in Europe are very uncomfortable, even with data that they've made public. How is that being used outside of my control? Well, I didn't intend for it to be used in that way, so therefore I'm actually going to stop using that platform. I remember in Sweden, there was a little bit of news that came out about Facebook, and one in three people didn't think twice, they shut down the Facebook account. Do you think about it, how much of an impact that will have on the facebook uh, marketing revenue for sweden it's huge it's huge so simple things can make massive differences and that's why as privacy professionals it's important to be able to understand how to do these things And it's important they're trained the right way so they don't just think, I have to use this template in this right. They can actually think for themselves.
3: Yeah, I
0: have two things to say about this template situation. Number one is, I used to have this example that I used all the time because the FTC at some point, I think this is now 2013 maybe, the FTC had enforced against a company that had copy-pasted a privacy notice from a competitor. (laughs) The privacy notice of the competitor was actually good, except... It wasn't applicable. And so the competitor had certain obligations with respect to providing a notice or an opt-out that the company that copy-pasted didn't. So then they put this thing in the privacy notice and the privacy notice said, we will let you opt out. But they did not let them opt out. It was just in the privacy notice. The FTC actually enforced against us for being misleading, right? Because it was wrong, it was not accurate. And the reason it wasn't accurate was because of a copy-paste. So that's one example, which is a good example still. But the other example that I can give is the California Attorney General's office issued this week in the beginning of the week, they issued a report on anonymized report on all of the non-public enforcement actions that they have taken. So under CCPA. I think under GDPR, it's informal because the the DPAs, the supervisory authorities, like send you a letter and then they decide if they want to pursue enforcement based on cooperation. In CCPA, it's actually it's ingrained in the law. You have a 30 day cure period which by the way, phases out in CPRA. So it goes away and becomes discretionary. But anyway, now it's mandatory. So there are a lot of notices of noncompliance that the attorney general issued to a number of companies and came to compliance. And they actually said that 75% of the companies came into compliance within the 30-day period. So they issued this report on the enforcement. And the report on the enforcement had made it very clear that the attorney general's office is looking at whether or not the privacy notices actually accurately reflect your data processing. And they actually also pointed out that they actually dinged one privacy notice too complex and too legalese. So they're also looking at it, is it something that an average consumer would understand? And so I think that the combination of those two things makes it so that you can't template, it's like, I mean, you template in the sense of I'm thinking like, like say yes to the dress kind of thing, right? Like you have wedding dresses. So you tailor them to the person, but I don't know if you guys watch this show, like a wedding dress show, right? Even the ones that you buy off the rack, you still need to tailor it. Your body needs to be closer to the rack model, right? But you still need to tailor it. You have a template in the sense of, yeah, I kind of know what's going on and I kind of know what a company of that nature does, but you've got to make it accurate. Forget like being a good citizen is maybe not something that works. Even though I think now it's very obvious that consumer trust is tied to the use of data, and so I think now saying, "Hey, this is a good business practice because literally people care," I think that's a statement that we can make now that maybe I couldn't make five years ago to a client and say, "Hey, this is the right thing to do," but it's like sensitive thing to do. Now it's the right thing to do. It's the business savvy thing to do. And, oh, by the way, it's the thing that regulators are looking at. So you don't want to get dinged thing to do. Awesome.
3: I'll share some clips of Say Yes (laughs) to the Dress with you, Jamal. Okay. (laughs) I I can't imagine you've ever seen it. I'm not sure this is
1: um, my (laughs) thing.
3: Ozio, what is your most memorable client story? The challenging
0: things with clients is that I have realized that as an attorney, people that are even consummate professionals who are not attorneys, their perception of which facts are relevant for me and what I need to do are different than what I know the facts are of what I need, right? And so that is something that my team of associates that I train, I also tell them because it's a complicated aspect of your practice. Number one, to realize this, right? That what your client told you may not be the end all and be all of things, right? It sometimes takes one question to realize that this is not what they meant, I actually saw this, I did not do this, but I had predecessors that used this big like GDPR questionnaire that they would send to clients for answers. And the questionnaire would come back and you'd read the questionnaire, you're supposed to like draft the privacy notice by this questionnaire. And, you know, a conversation immediately revealed the black over white answer that you saw on the paper was not life itself, right? So that's number one is realizing this. And then number two, the courage, I guess, that you need to stand up to the client and say, you know, you said this, but you can say it in a way, you know, you guys are also very diplomatic in how you say it. Yes. Um, but let's explore, you know, what this could mean. You don't have to say, okay, this is wrong. But like, it's very difficult as an attorney, and especially starting out. To kind of have the courage to say, hey, I'm not sure this is exactly what it is, but it's your responsibility to do it because you're supposed to protect the client from exposure. And so I think that's something that sort of follows its way. I keep seeing this because, especially in privacy, because it's so important to be fact accurate. That's something that I think is something that I would flag.
3: Is that something you feel you've gotten better with with experience or did you ever struggle with that at the beginning of your career? Yeah, for sure. And that's why I
0: tell my associates that we, we have to do. You've got brave is hard. Courage is hard. I am a big fan of Brene Brown. And she says, you know, you learn courage by couraging right? Like you just got to do it and then you get better at it. And it's really difficult. And this is not really privacy, but if we're talking to practitioners that are starting out, I think it's worth saying. The other aspect is communication, right? Like communicating with clients, the epitome of, you know, the bane of our existence is, you know, we always have too much work. We're always like behind. We're always like hamsters on a treadmill or whatever falling off. Right. But Sometimes, and it's very scary, like you have a deadline, client is expecting something by midweek, by end of the week, you know, you need to have the courage to say, look, like I can't do it by tomorrow. The other is, okay, you thought you could, but something happened. It's really difficult and yet imperative that you look at it. It's like, oh, I'm not going to be able to do it by tomorrow. I need another couple of days. And, you know, in the majority of the cases, It's more about the communication and the trust with the client. Oh, you were thinking of me, have me in your thoughts, you're prioritizing, I understand, as opposed to maybe they won't remember and just like, you know, keep dragging it. And then the deadline passes and then you get an email from the client and then they're not happy, right? And that is very difficult to do, totally difficult for me to do, to have done early on. Also, maybe generalization, but I also think that women have more of a tendency to like open emails with an apology. I didn't do anything wrong. So that's definitely something that you have to learn. And I try to also kind of pass it forward to my team to start with from and get that skill from the beginning.
3: That's really interesting. I was going to ask you, did you find it more difficult as a woman trying not to apologize? And I think there's a certain reputation that can come into it when a woman in a workplace is being confident, might get portrayed as aggressive and that kind of thing. Yep. Totally. Yes. I think
0: that this issue is an issue on both sides of the table. It's an issue for us as women to not do it. Right. Also Brene quote her again because she was saying that she was teaching a class and she had her students self-grade. And she said that all the men gave themselves A's and all the women were like undergrading themselves. So she had to stop. Doing it because of that. So, like, we as women also have to stop doing that. And I sort of do this informally, like in mentoring or teaching or whatever, women associates or partners, whatever, to not do that because we can't do that. And the flip side is, is I think we should focus on, you know, the teaching and the training and the changing and whatever, because I think that if something is attributed to our behavior, like we should own it and change it. But I think that on the flip side, There is still an issue with when you don't do that and when you behave like everybody else behaves, like men behave, then you get a thing of like, oh, like you're aggressive. If I were not a woman, you would not be saying that, that I'm not aggressive, right? You'd be saying, hey, you know, that's a go-getter. That's like an assertive person. So I think that we have issues on both sides and that
1: need work. As part of the 12 Weeks Accelerator program, one of the things that we teach is the whole mindset classes and the communication and a big part of what we teach as part of that mindset and the communications is actually, number one, you need to have a growth mindset and you need to be confident in yourself. But it's about being confident about balancing that with the mindset of a world class privacy professional, having that ecological and ethical framework, but also having those communication skills. And one of the things that I found when I first started my career was I was very black and white, I was very direct. And as you said, you can't always take that approach, especially when you're working with clients all over the world. You have to take into account cultures, you have to take into account language, you have to take into account how things land. And there's different ways of doing things and you need to be very approachable and versatile. So we spend a lot of time just teaching people the skills and the art of communication and how to apply in different situations. And when you can really understand a framework of how to communicate effectively, when you can listen out for people's preferred representational systems, when you understand that 55% of communication is your body language, the 38% is your tonality, and only 7% is the actual words that you use and really master all that, it becomes so much more powerful. All becomes about you as an empowered world-class privacy professional, really doing everything you need to do to protect the reputation of your customers so they can inspire confidence so they can cultivate trust and ultimately secure more business if they're in the private business trade
0: i completely agree the the cultural issue and being mindful of the people that you're speaking with you guys are english so you probably have seen those charts what english people say what english people mean right like for somebody like me right that's very used to very direct communication It's like, it's shocking, right? But you have to understand it and you have to adapt yourself to your client style, right? Like some clients want you know, recurring meetings. Some clients want email updates. Some clients got to adapt yourself anyway. You definitely have to adapt yourself culturally. And then the other thing I'm going to say is the Carol Dweck book, Mindset, is like a life-changing book that I think everybody should read. It's amazing. And once you grasp the concept of growth mindset and that you can, by applying yourself with effort and your tenacity, you can change pretty much anything that you want to change. That's, I think, like a huge, huge takeaway. If, if people can take that on as early as possible in their careers and lives. Yeah, I
1: mean, Caroline, direction—the whole growth mindset. Stuff, that's the first thing: on growth mindset and fixed mindset. And for us, people have gone through the program. They've you know doubled the salary. They've come at the other end, and you go back and say, "Look, what was the one thing that really stood out for you?" They don't talk about the privacy training. They don't talk about the practical aspect of it. They always come back with the mindset is the change that made the biggest change for me. When that clicks, I think everything else falls into place. So that's the reason we have that at the beginning, because we know that, look, if we can change your mindset then everything else becomes easier and everything else becomes more fluid and more consistent, and you can really go and be the best you can be. Yep,
3: I agree. Great. A lot of tips there. And I think not just for people who are in the sector, but just generally, I mean, I've learn a few things from listening to that. I think I'm going to try and be more assertive when I'm working. We'll see how it goes. I'll keep you updated. (laughs) I was reading an interview you did with Data Guidance. I think it was the five minutes with you interview. And you mentioned that George Orwell's 1984 was key to understanding data protection. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that, maybe for people who haven't read 1984. Oh my God, everybody should go read 1984, especially
0: now, you know, when I read it, which was a long time ago, this was before, right? My kids are like shocked, mom, you didn't have iPad. I'm like, we didn't have internet kids. Like, (laughs) so like before all of that, right? Like the phones and the smartphones and the iPad and the internet and all that. First of all, this book is like genius in foreshadowing what's going to happen and two it's just supremely well written and just insightful as to what an excessive you know surveillance and control of information Could be the critique, obviously, of, you know, certain regimes that exist in the world. So that's also really interesting. But in the privacy sense, it also gives you a strong sense of what happens when somebody else has control over your information and how that is disempowering two people. And I'm also kind of a fan of dystopias. I mean, I like Brave New World and, you know, Ayn Rand and stuff. So I like that genre generally. 1984 is a mandatory
1: reading for anybody that's interested in privacy. You know what? I'm going to add that as mandatory reading. It'll it'll be the pre-work they have to do before they can join the live session.
0: Yeah, they can all blame me now. (laughs) Oh, thank you. There's a book that I read. So it's also in the same
1: kind of vein
0: as this. It's called Jennifer Government. And it's also very kind of like futuristic dystopia and what happens when like the government takes people's kind of identities and whatever are taken over. I think generally speaking, by the way, not as a specific recommendation, I would say that, you know, privacy professionals or like any professionals, I think should read and expose themselves to content that is diverse in general topics. So I think like I listen to podcasts and read a lot of books on personal development and psychology and leadership or management. I mentioned Brene Brown, right? I follow her podcast. She has really two really good podcasts. One is called Dare to Lead, which is leadership focused. And the other is called Unlocking Us, which talks about like different aspects of life and people. And the cool thing about that is that well, cool and uncool is she speaks with different author of a book, usually current, important, and you know, effective. And so she interviews them for an hour with respect to the book. So that's really interesting because it gives you insight into different topics and different books and things that you want to kind of dig further into. So that's the cool aspect. The bad aspect is now my audible wish list of like 60 books that I need to get to reading. You know, you keep that is kind of the downside of that, but that's
3: also an upside too. We'll stick the links in. Odia, why is it so important to train in data privacy with experts rather than just reading a book and learning how to pass an exam like the CIP or the CIPM? I don't
0: think it's impossible to do it yourself. It's just much more difficult, right? Like it's much more difficult to do. And it's much more difficult to get two things one, to get the discipline, right? And the structure and the consistency. Number two, to understand what you didn't understand, right? Like there are things that you read, it's like, oh, I didn't, what exactly? Either you know that you don't know, but you've got nobody to ask, or you don't even know that you don't know because you just completely like glossed over this and you didn't realize that you didn't grasp the topic. And then the fourth one, which I think is the most important is when you do the training, right? The most important piece, important piece for people that are going to take an exam is to pass the exam, right? Like, great, fine. But the real life important is you've got to understand how all of this stuff applies in real life. And I think that an instructor that is an actual practitioner and gives examples, I think is priceless. And this is one of the things that I really strive to do as a goal. When I do, I post a lot on LinkedIn and my goal, I'm really happy when people say, oh, that was so clear. I understood that because that's really what my goal is, is to break down these concepts of GDPR that are really complex, really amorphic and like somewhat maybe boring and kind of bring them down into what they actually mean. So if somebody says, do you have a legitimate interest or do you have a right legal basis for it? Right. And you ask somebody that it's like, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean in, in life? What am I supposed to do? What am I looking at? Right. Like those concepts that you throw around in like a legal opinion or something that. Doesn't help the client. You are collecting VINs and you are collecting exact geolocation data. Okay, what does that mean? You need to disclose it here. You need to have a pop up here. You need to get consent there. Like breaking it down. When you read the Article 12 transparency, okay, what does that mean? Or like when the Article 29 working party did it, it's like, what does that mean? And that's really important because, you know, okay, you may be able to get enough retained in your brain to pass an exam. But then, okay, do you retain it later? Because things that your brain doesn't grasp, they don't stay. But later you go to practice, right? Because that's the whole point. Is practicing, you've got to understand how it applies in real life. Because otherwise, if you don't, you're not helpful to
1: your client. Absolutely. Absolutely. You've nailed it on the head there. And also, uh, before you even get to practice it for your client, uh, oftentimes people are looking to get hired. So how is somebody going to hire you when they're asking you these technical questions and you can't actually demonstrate you understand how to answer in practice, or you regurgitate something you've memorized, the hiring manager, the, the end client, they don't want to hear that. They want to know that you know your stuff, you know how to apply it. And you can't read a book and learn how to apply it. Right.
0: I mean, I did that when I was teaching in law school, my law school experience, everything was open book. So my exams were always open book. It was like, I wrote a hypo. I wrote this as a hypothetical case and it's like, okay, we'll solve it. And I didn't have a word limit or a page limit. Right. So people, especially today, right? With their laptops, everybody was like copy pasting everything that I said in class, right? And like copy paste all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, I know that you copied over my PowerPoint. Why is this helpful to me? People like submit like 15 pages of stuff. And then there was somebody else who had like eight pages of stuff, but they were actually like the implementing and analyzing. And that's much more helpful because at least my experience is that clients are no longer interested in 30, 40 page memos with citations and things like, what do I need to do? What's my thing? What am I I doing? What does it look like in real life? I actually get screenshots. I was like, can you send me the screenshots? Can you send me the flow? Can you do a demo? And then I'm like, okay, this screen, no, put this here. Yesterday, I had a client, we were talking about notices at collection, and they sent me the link. And I'm like, I cropped There is this very helpful thing in Windows, the snip tool, right? I snip little pieces of the screen. I'm like, here, you know, take that out, move that here, move that there. And that's what I, I, if I tell the client, present the information in the way that's most helpful to the consumer, like,
3: do they know what that
0: means? No. Yeah. Right. So it's not it doesn't you need to kind of do apply it to real life.
3: Yeah. So the last question, as I mentioned earlier, gives you an opportunity to ask Jamal a question. Anything you'd like at all. The floor is yours. What do you
0: look for when you're getting instructors for the program? Yes.
1: Yeah, so the top three things. Number one is that they have to actually be passionate about data privacy. They have to have a real passion for data privacy. And I've come across people who have invested good money. Sometimes they've self-funded, other times it's been paid for by their business, where they've gone through training, whether it be two days or a week, and they're like, it was so dry. The instructor had no passion for what they were talking about. Sometimes people actually go and they are led by instructors who are just instructors, as in they have no field experience. So what I look for is people with practical experience who are really passionate about privacy and the practical experience needs to be like breadth and depth. It's not just good enough to have sat in an office and write written a couple of policies and said here, it's people that actually know they've had breadth and depth of experience. They bring all of that experience. And now because they have so much experience, they can actually break down what all of these concepts mean. Well, how does it apply? Okay, you don't understand it from this example. Let me share a story from this client or let me share a problem from this industry. Or I did it like this here, but I wouldn't do it like this over there. So people that have that richness and experience and also people that are really passionate about privacy. Like you need to be passionate about this stuff. If you're not passionate, then you're not good enough to train. You don't deserve the stage or the privilege to train the people or to mentor the people who really want to know. So those are the two things that I really look for.
0: And I would say, one, I think it's really important because I've taken courses by people that you know, I do webinars a lot. And, and people are like, oh, we need a PowerPoint. We need a PowerPoint. And I'm like, fine. I mean, sometimes you do need a PowerPoint, but if you're reading off the PowerPoint, we don't need you. I can just read the PowerPoint, right? Exactly. And so that's one aspect. And the other is that I would say is, I think you need to have passion for privacy generally, if you want to be in that field, right? Like if you're not passionate about it, and you know, I have a lot, I have, you know, people like two L's or you know, people starting out, like, you know, what should I do? I'm like, you've got to really like it. If you don't really like it, let me tell you, this is like me, me and the harsh truth, here. <laughs> What's the book? The Al Gore book, right? The ugly truth. So if you're not passionate about this and you want to be privacy professional or an attorney, not a good idea because it's not an easy job. It is a lot. It is time consuming. It is intense. It is a service profession. You need to cater to clients. They have their preferences. They have their deadlines. They have their problems. It is not easy. If it's not easy, plus you don't love it, Really difficult, much better to get a job that's much more relaxed. I mean, I think it's kind of important to get a job that you love anyway. But I think if you're gonna not love your job, you'd better pick something that's less demanding than this. Like when I'm sitting and my kids are like, you know, laughing at me because I'm sitting with my phone and reading all my stuff. They're like, mom, how many emails do you have? Is it still a hundred? Like but I enjoy it. Right. It's, I'm interested. You know, my husband laughs at me because I'm like reading an EBB thing. I'm like, I can't, I have 10 more pages. I can't, can up. I can't move. Right. So if you don't like it super hard to trudge through the days. And so I would say you need to be passionate both if you're an instructor, but both if you're a privacy professional and there are so many things in this area that you could like. So if you're like, oh, well, I really don't like compliance. Well, maybe you like, you know, counseling or maybe you like incident response or maybe you like litigation or maybe you like privacy engineering. I mean, there's so much stuff. It's important to kind of spend the time to figure out what you like and like it. Yeah, and find your niche.
1: Thank you so much for your answers there, If
2: you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, like and share so you're notified when a new episode is released.
1: Remember to join the Privacy Pros Academy Facebook group where we answer your questions
2: thank you so much for listening I hope you're leaving with some great things that will add value on your journey as a world-class privacy pro
1: please leave us a four or five star review
2: and if you'd like to appear on a future episode of our podcast or
1: have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to hear more about
2: please send an email to team at kcnt.co.uk
1: until next time peace be with you